Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. And we're going to go back and we looked at that passage about midway through the year. We're going to go back and revisit that passage. Although the lesson, I assure you, will be a different one tonight. You may have noticed if you picked up, and first of all, good to see everyone who's here. Welcome back this afternoon. But if you picked up an outline, you may have noticed this is a little bit of a strange lesson. Um, But I'm going to talk about the beautiful stones. And if you picked up an outline, you know that those are the beautiful stones of the temple. We're going to talk a little bit about the temple, but more than that, we're going to talk about the Jews and their mindset um, around, you might say, the whole temple idea of what it meant, uh, the advantages maybe of having it. If I can remember where the book of Jeremiah is. There we go. But the advantage of having the temple, of being God's people with the temple in Jerusalem, etc., etc., God in Jeremiah 7, and you may remember this from earlier in the year because I really focused on this idea, God sent Jeremiah, and he first begins to say this in the temple, as it's often called the temple address in chapter 7, but several times in the book, God will say to the people who are you know, entering in at the, the gates of the temple, if you'll notice in Jeremiah 7 and down in verse 2, He will say, God will say to Jeremiah, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim here this word and say, this would be to the people, hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Drop down to verse 4 and notice when he will say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. There's a message here and God will say, if you notice in this passage in verse 3, Amend your ways and your doings. And of course, there's a promise with that. I'll cause you to dwell in the land. But this idea of amending your ways and your doings. Now, if you're in the class, and I don't think a lot of people that are here are in my class on Wednesday night, you notice that we've really torn this phrase down and looked at it. But in a nutshell, what God is saying is, I want you to amend, to change, to repent. And I want that repentance to be on a basic level, all the way down to, and I think when he talks about their ways here, if you look at the word in the original, the idea of the ways are their thoughts. One might say their dispositions, or what they are disposed to do, how they think in their mind, their thought processes, we would say a lot today, but what moves them to the actions that they take. So I want you to thoroughly amend your ways, your thoughts, your dispositions, and your doings, which obviously would be when they carry that out, the actions they take. Now, if you'll go over to chapter 18 and look down in verse 11, you'll notice God repeats this, but he adds something to it in Jeremiah 18. And the book of Jeremiah is not in chronological order, so he may have said this before or after, probably after, But nonetheless, this is what God is thinking of them, feeling of them, if you will. This is is God's view of them. But look at chapter 18 and go down to verse 11. And notice, God knew their hearts. Even when he said, amend your ways and your doings, he knew their hearts. And so down in verse 11, he said, now therefore go and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and say this. Thus saith the Lord. Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you, King James, but I'll come back to that. 
I frame evil, I devise a device against you, return you now everyone from his evil way, and notice, and make your ways and your doings good. So God knew their heart. He knew that even though he said to them, if you'll change your ways, your thoughts, your dispositions, and you'll change your actions, I'll bless you. I'll cause you to continue to dwell in the land of Judah. I'll take care of you. I'll continue to bless you. We go back to Deuteronomy. We see that covenant with his people and all that he promised to do if they were obedient, as we talked about this morning, to his commands. But he knew their hearts. And he knew they would not repent. So I frame evil against you. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm going to bring a calamity. That word for evil there is the word for disaster. And it's going to take that. Just like it takes a lot of time for people to turn, uh, as a nation of people, to turn around. Sometimes it takes that in our individual lives. And we don't change. We don't change the way we think. We don't change what's going on with our lives until something serious enough happens. And sometimes that takes a a disaster, a calamity. Um, You see people. And many have remarked how after 9-11, for example, how religious, quote-unquote, the nation got. How church attendance spiked that following Sunday from 9-11. People respond to a disaster. God said, I frame evil. I'm bringing a calamity, a disaster against you. And I devise a device. That is, I've got a plan. I know that just saying to you, you've got to change is falling on deaf ears. I know when I say amend your ways, change the way you think, that you're not going to change the way you think. And when I say change your actions, you're not going to change your actions. So I've got a plan, I've got a full intention to bring a disaster upon you, and I know that will work. That that will change and it will turn the nation of Israel. Now we may come back and talk more about that, but I'm more interested in what he's saying here right now. I want you to go yet again to chapter 26. When he says one more time this idea of amending their ways, look at chapter 26, and I'm going to go down to verse 12, and really right in the middle of verse 12, when Jeremiah said, The Lord sent me to prophesy against the house and against the city all the words that you have heard. Therefore now, notice verse 13, Amend your ways and your doings and obey the voice of the Lord your God, and the Lord will repent. Now the word is change. The Lord will change from the evil, that calamity, disaster he fully intends to bring on them. If they will change, he will change that, that he's pronounced against you. Now notice what God is saying. It's already set. It's already done. I'm telling you you've got to change, but I'm telling you also that I know your heart, and I know you have no intention of changing, and I'm telling you further that I look at your lives, and I look at the nation, and I've got a plan. If you don't take the initiative to turn it around on your own, and you're not going to, I've got a plan to turn it around. Now, that's a scary thing. We've got this written down, and we know this happens over 2,500 years ago, and so we don't get all concerned about God announcing basically a political decision against the fate of the nation. But the point is, this is exactly what God does. In fact, if we were to break down, and this is not a lesson necessarily about chastisement, but it easily could be. Because if we were talking about, if we were to go to Hebrews 12, and we were to talk about the fact that these are God's children, just like Christians today, and we were to see where the writer of Hebrews quoted from the Old Testament, he would say to Christians, if God loves you, 
God chastens you. Because God looks at you and he says to you as a Christian, as a child of his, you've got to change your life. You committed to that. You have a covenant with me to repent, as we talked about this morning. You promise to obey me, and you're either going to do that, or I'm going to do everything I can to change you. No parent, and Hebrews 12 talks about God as a father, no parent is worth anything who will just let his child slide into a disaster of a life without trying to help them. Trying to change them. If you love your child, you try to... Now, it may fall on deaf ears. It may take a disaster. It may take hard punishment. It may take a lot of things. But as the parent, you're with the child, quote-unquote, for the long haul, and you're there to help the child so that the child has a good life. And God loves His children, be they the Jews or be they Christians today. So He's clearly telling them, I know what's going on inside you, And believe me, if you won't do it on your own, I've got a plan. And that plan involves a disaster. And I will bring it against you. Now, when we go back to the people, let's go back to Jeremiah 7 again, though, and notice the people. In verse 4, after telling them, amend your ways and your doings, read with me verse 4. When Jeremiah immediately said, and you may remember earlier earlier in the year, I had a lesson on the trust not in lying words. But that's exactly what God said. Trust you not in lying words, saying. And tonight I want to really focus on what they were saying. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Notice the important two words are these. If you can picture this, they were entering in at the gates of the temple. And you can almost see it on certain days, etc., But really, on a daily basis, people were walking through the gates, going through the court of the temple. And that's what he's talking about here. It's where Jeremiah was standing and preaching. And then they were going on in to the area where the priest, in the holy place every day, but then once a year, the most, you know, the high priest in the most holy place, but where they would go into the temple and they would do service with regards to the sins of the people. But as they were filing in, and I kind of parallel this, and I think we understand the picture, maybe like on a Sunday morning as it gets close to 10 o'clock, or again, if, you, if you've ever walked outside on a beautiful day and just kind of get a breath of air or whatever, like nearly 11 o'clock, you see all these people, and they're coming from every direction to the front door there. And as you watch that and you see people filing in, I picture what's going on here. Maybe, maybe there were a lot more people, et cetera, et cetera, but it's still very similar. And what God is saying to Jeremiah is tell these people as they're coming in not to look at the temple and gain confidence. That's a lie. Because what's happening, and I know this can happen to Christians, you can get a sort of a a, a burst of security or a burst of a a sense of confidence because, and I know I felt this a long time ago when I, you know, I obeyed the gospel, I began to study the Bible, I felt like I'd found the truth. And, you know, and I was confident about that. And you sort of feel good about it. And I, remember, I can remember walking through the doors and sometimes sitting on the pew and kind of looking around at what we were doing. And it was all fresh in my mind, you know, for the first time of looking at passages like that had to do with the Lord's Supper, for example, and really feeling good about that. Now, that's fine for a new convert, but God is saying to his seasoned people here, Don't get all wrapped up in the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. 
And here's why. I want you to go over with me to the book of Micah for a moment. Seems like Edward and I keep going to Micah today. But let's go to Micah. And this time I'm going to go to Micah chapter 3. And I want you to listen to something very similar in Micah 3. Go down to about verse 11. And this is where, again, Micah is really chastising the people of Jerusalem. You can see that in verse 10. But he says in verse 11, The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Now, we all understand, and I think we'd be the first to say that if a preacher is preaching for the money, we don't want it. We don't want somebody that's doing it for the money, because if they're doing it for the money, their first concern is the money. It's not the truth. But that's exactly what was going on here. All the people that were in charge of teaching... You know, whether they were judges or priests or prophets, they were doing it for the money. Now, notice as he goes on here. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? When they say lean upon the Lord, it's kind of like, you know, we talk about a calling card or we call on something. You know, kind of like something that we take out of our back pocket, you know, draw it when we need it, that kind of thing. That's the way he's saying they lean upon the Lord. They use, they, they throw just enough of the Lord in there, in their message, that it all sounds good. So let's read what he said. They will lean upon the Lord and they'll say, it's not the Lord among us. None evil can come upon us. Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house is the high place of the forest. What does God say? God is saying, you run out there, you're doing it for the money, and so you're throwing bits of confidence. You're giving pleasing ideas to the people. Now, if you go back to verse 10, you can see they were corrupt people. Just like in Jeremiah, they're corrupt people. But they were being given a sense of security as, the, as those who were teaching were saying, hey, you know, you're God's people. The Lord is among us. It's like a preacher who will stand and who, regardless of what he teaches, regardless of what the church is doing, will placate the audience by constantly reminding them, you know, you're Christians. You're, you're members of the church. God is with you. You will notice that, and I don't know if people like this or they don't like that, but you don't hear that from Wes and me a lot. It's true. We are God's people. And it's true that we should take confidence in that. And it's true that there is blessed assurance. And I'm not trying to say that we should not say that. But if what we're doing is basically teaching a message that said it doesn't matter what you do with your life, it doesn't matter what you do in your personal life, God is with you. God will take care of you. God will bless you. Hey, we're the church. We're the ones that God is going to bless. Then we're doing exactly what those prophets of old were doing with those people. They weren't concerned with the sins they were committing. They were only concerned with the money they would get if they preached the message that sounded good and that the people wanted. And so God is saying here, stop trusting in that lie. Because that's what it is. It's a lie. It's a lie that the people in charge of teaching are telling. It's a lie you're telling yourself. You're walking in here and you're saying, the church of Christ, the temple of the Lord. And you're all confident in that and you're not thinking about what he goes on to talk about. You may remember I looked at some of this back in the summer. You're not thinking about all the things going on in your lives. Let's run through some of these things, and I'll do it quickly because I preached this six months ago. But they were immoral people. I mean, extremely immoral people. And they felt content to live 
immoral lives because they were, after all, God's people. And so God will say to him, do you think that you're delivered by me to come into this place, be what you are, sin like you sin, and that I'm going to say, hey, it's great, you're okay, and I'm going to bless you. Do you think that's what you're doing? And the answer to that is no. You cheat each other. You go down and you can scan down through the chapter and see some of this, but verses 5 and 6, on a daily basis, you're cheating each other. You're not trying to treat each other fairly. You're not trying to be as brothers should be. You're more concerned with what you can get on your brother, what you can get out of him. You don't, like 2 Timothy 3 that we just studied last month in the men's class, you break treaties or covenants with each other. You're people who care more about yourself and the pleasures that you have and so forth and so on. You're not concerned with being fair. And your daily life is filled, if you'll notice, it could drop down to, oh, what verse is it? Uh, right down in the middle of the chapter, <laughs> somewhere there. But your daily lives are filled with death and murder and lying, even breaking your vows and your oaths. And we look at that and we say, man, how horrible. And yet then we look around and we say, how many members of the church get caught in lies? How many members of the church get caught really stealing? First, oh, I don't know if anybody steals. Do we not? I mean, stealing can be on a grand basis of robbing a bank, and stealing can be the little things we do to kind of steal a penny here and take a nickel there. And the vows. How many members of the church have we known in our lifetime? We take our vows, we take our oaths, we promise, we say before God we're going to do something, whether it's marriage or otherwise, and then they're broken. These are the lives these people were living. They were immodest people. They were immoral people. If you drop down to about verse 7 through 10, he talks about the fact that adultery is just rampant in the land. They have no ability, no shame about them, no ability to blush when they do such things. They are a people ripe with idolatry. And I could get off on that tonight, but I'm not going to. But the idolatry was hideous in the land. If you look down near the end of the chapter, go down to about verse 30 or so and read with me. The children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations even in the house, in the temple itself, which is called by my name to pollute it. And they built the high places of Tophet here in verse 31, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And they burned their sons and their daughters in the fire. We talked about this morning the idea of being carried away with sacrifice. Edward read the passage in, Matthew, in, in Micah 6. And the whole idea of sacrifice at its worst, when you be carried away, when you get carried away in a mindset of sacrifice is all that's important. Forget obedience, the more I sacrifice. Now, I don't know how this, I, I don't know how you get to this point. But I do understand that people want to please God and they are willing to sacrifice to do that. And if you got so carried away, you might think, the best thing I can do is to give my child. And they would literally burn alive their, their young children in sacrifice. And God, obviously, in Micah 6 there is saying, you think I want that? Obviously, I don't want that. But I think, when I look at this, and, and if I can, I'll make a comparison, a parallel. And I think about even right now in our land, how many people are willing to condone and accept and give themselves to the thoughts, the ideas, the chosen lifestyles of their children 
and are willing to sacrifice that standing against what they know is wrong, standing against what they know is going to condemn their child's soul, and yet they'll go sacrifice their own feelings, their own personal convictions, and I see it even in my family, so I know exactly what I'm talking about. To sacrifice your convictions for the sake of a relationship, for the sake of, and even to get to the point to convince yourself that somehow God wants that. God wants me to condone this lifestyle this person has chosen. God wants that. And so to make that sacrifice. That's what these people, that's where they were. And God looks at these people and all of this, all of the immorality that's rampant in the land and says, do you think that I'm going to look at you in all of this and just because the temple is in Jerusalem, that I'm going to come down here and protect you so you can continue to walk through these gates, as we would say, through these doors, and live the lives that you're living? Is that what you think? And the answer is obviously no. Because here's the point. And I hope you don't miss this point, and so I would encourage you to listen carefully. Because you may miss it if you don't. You know, it's not about the temple. And I'll tell you something else. It's not about the church. We can do the same thing with the church. And I mean, not just the building here, but the church. We can do the same thing with the church that they did with the temple. It's not about the temple. It never was about the temple. And I want you to look with me, if you will, at some passages that really show that. Find my place on the outline. You should go with me to Acts chapter 7 for a moment. It never was about the temple. And I don't think the Jews understood that. They didn't understand it in Jeremiah's day. And they don't understand it in the New Testament times. Even after, of course, things have changed from the temple. But notice what Stephen said in Acts 7. And let's listen to this carefully. Now, if you go through Acts 7, and we don't have time to do that, but if you go through Acts 7, he's just giving a history lesson. God called Abraham, and then there was Moses, and then there was the prophets. But I want you to drop down to where the, the address to these people ends, because obviously they kill him. But go down with me, if you will, and I'm going to start about verse 45, maybe. And if you'll notice, he's saying something very similar to what Jesus read that was read for us just a little bit ago. He's talking about here the idea of Moses and the tabernacle, and he said, Who also our fathers, and, uh, let's see, is that the, yeah, yeah, I do want verse 45. All right, so let's start again in verse 45. Who also our fathers that came after brought in with Joshua into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers unto the days of David. Now notice what he's saying. Just the history lesson. Joshua coming in there, conquering Canaan. Now, David. Then he said, David, who found favor before God and wanted or desired to find a tabernacle. Remember, David wanted to build a house for God. Wasn't allowed to, 2 Samuel 7. But verse 47, Solomon built him a house. Now, we understand that. We know the history. But I want you to notice what Stephen says here. Verse 48, how be it? The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, even so do ye. And so what he's saying here is it's never been about the temple. Yes, Solomon built him a house. Yes, God allowed the building of the temple. Yes, there was a most holy place. Yes, there was the presence of the Holy Spirit. Yes, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And yes, God blessed you with those things going on there. And it still was never about the temple. It was always about the God behind the temple. And they didn't understand that. And I'm afraid a lot of people don't understand that. It's not about the church. It's not about the building. It's not about all of these things. It is always about the Lord behind it. If I look at the Lord's Supper, and I see, and I want you to stay with me for a moment. If I look at the Lord's Supper, and I see the Lord's Supper, I see the unleavened bread, the fruit of the vine, I see the fact that we're doing it on the first day of the week, I see that we're, you know, and I'm meticulously checking off and saying, hey, we're doing that right, we're doing that right, we're doing that right, we're doing that right, and if that's what I see, I missed it. It's not about that. It could have been anything. But that's what the Lord chose. And it's about the Lord. It's not about the church. It's not about anything that has to do with the church. It's about the Lord behind it. It doesn't matter what God has said. What matters is that He has said it. Now, a person might say, well, what's the difference? There's everything different between those two. Everything. Let's read on. Look with me, if you will, at John chapter 2. They don't get it. These people do not get that it's not about the temple. Go with me to John 2 and a little bit of a history lesson here, but I won't belabor the point. Remember, Solomon built him a house. But you know the story. They will go on to be unfaithful in Jeremiah's time, and God will send Nebuchadnezzar, and he will destroy that temple. And if you go further, they'll come back from captivity and they will build a temple. And they'll get that temple completed basically about 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. About the difference in 586 and 516 B.C. But it won't nearly compare with Solomon's temple. In fact, it'll be so much less than Solomon's temple that old people who were children who saw Solomon's temple will cry. And how much less it really is. But do you see what's happening there? It's still to these people about the temple. They're still focused on the temple. It's so much less than Solomon's temple. It's so much less than we had before. It's not as grand. It's not as glorious. Go with me to John chapter 2. Now in Jesus' day, in fact before Jesus' day, there was a renovation that was taking place at the temple. And if you go back in history, you can see this. A lot of unrest. The Romans took over. Remember that? They put the Herods, who were really Edomites, in charge. And the people hate all that. Obviously. They don't like being dominated. They don't like being under the control of the Romans. And they sure don't like having an Edomite for a king. Well, Herod, and Rome, with Rome's backing, did something brilliant. And what they did is they started renovating that rinky-dink, if you will, and I'll just stay with the people's idea, that much less glorious temple from Haggai's day. 
they started renovating it. So drop down with me to John chapter 2 and go to verse 19. When Jesus turned over the money changers table and all of that, remember that incident? They said, what sign are you going to show us for these things? And Jesus said in verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now you know the story, so you know he's talking about his body. You know, kill this body, destroy this body, and in three days I'll raise it up. I'll be resurrected from the dead. But they didn't hear that. They didn't get that. Obviously so. Destroy this temple. Now, here's what they would have done. A Jew that day would have looked around him. And he would have seen this once rinky-dink temple from Haggai's day. And he will respond to Jesus, and you see in verse 20, 46 years. This temple has been in building. Now you may think that, well, they started building this temple 46 years ago. No. They built it in 516 B.C. But it was renovated, a series of renovations, costly renovations. A lot of gold, a lot of marble, really nice imported marble. And they built this grandeur of a temple, and they had been renovating this thing for 46 years. And I'll tell you something. This thing will go on being renovated for another 40 plus years. In fact, they won't even be through remodeling when Rome comes in and destroys it again. They're saying, man, this thing's been worked on for 46 years. Look at this place. And you're going to destroy this? God wouldn't let you destroy this. Look how beautiful it is. Never was about the temple. But you know, it's not just the Jews. Go with me to Acts 17 for a moment. In fact, Paul goes into the city of Athens, and you remember this story, goes to Areopagus, or Mars Hill, and he finds there an altar, verse 23, to the unknown God. They were carried away with building big, beautiful altars. And Stones that were erected and dedicated to gods. And they even erected and dedicated one to the God. We don't know him, but we know there's a God out there. And so we build an altar to the unknown God. Paul said, you know what, that's the one I want to talk about. But listen to the language. Pick up with me in verse 23. I passed by and I beheld your devotions, he says. I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now go on in verse 24 with me. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. And neither is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. And he's made of one blood, all nations of men, to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined the times before before appointed and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord. Notice, they should seek the Lord. Look for him. If perhaps they might grasp him, and I'm just translating that for you, but if perhaps they may grasp him, lay a hand on him, chase him down, literally is the idea, and find him. Though he really is not far from every one of us. See what he's saying there? It seems to be the mindset of people. If I walk into a building, I find God. And if the building is big and beautiful and glorious and there's grandeur and we can look at all of this stuff and be amazed with it, 
I've really found God. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew, if you're a Gentile in the first century, or if you're somebody today looking for the big, the best, the prettiest, the most beautiful, the most elaborate. I've known people, for example, who would go into an area and there were a few Christians who were meeting perhaps in a storefront. And it's the only congregation of the Lord's people for miles around. But man, they meet in a storefront. They don't even have a church building. And I've had to talk to people about that. I've had to go back all the way to the basics and make the point, when did the Lord ever say, to be faithful to me, build the biggest, beautiful, most beautiful, elaborate church building? Now, we have a building, and I think we have authority for a building, and the heat we use, you know, on days like today, and the air in the summer, and the water fountain back here, and the books we sing from, we have authority to do that because it facilitates our worship of the Lord. But whenever we get carried away that it's not it's not good enough. It doesn't look good enough. It's not beautiful enough. It doesn't have all the gold and all the trimmings that that place has. We missed it. And whenever we get to thinking that just because I attend a place, I come in and sit down on a pew in a place, that I'm somehow secure, that God would never let anything happen to me because I'm a member of this church. We missed it. And the message of Jeremiah is, I care about your ways and your doings. That's what I care about. And the fact that you worship me. You see, the Jews took confidence in repeating this, this phrase. That's why you see it in Jeremiah 7, verse 4, and again in verse 14. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Somebody says, why in the world is he telling them, go say it three times? Because they were repeating it. It's what they were saying to make themselves feel confident. It was like a security blanket. You know, like Linus dragging around that blanket all the time. It was a security blanket. It was a false sense of security. They were Jews. They were God's people. That's true. They were in the city of Zion. God's holy city. That's true. They had the temple. The temple of the Lord are these. These buildings. And only these buildings belong to God. That is true. There were temples all over the face of the earth. We know that from history at that time. And not a one of them was God's but that one temple. All of that is true. But it never was about the temple. And when you hear people today throwing the phrase, phrases like this, the Lord's church, it is true. This church belongs to the Lord. The church of Christ, the Lord's church, it belongs to Him. That is true. But when you begin to take great confidence, and your people, for example, you go to a funeral, and if there are members of the church there, they will be talking about so-and-so was a member of the church. And you're thinking, okay, that means that person was baptized. I don't know the person, maybe. They were baptized, they became a member of the church. What kind of life did they live? Oh, they were a member of the church. So-and-so was a Christian. What does that mean? 
what does being a Christian mean? And when you begin to tear it down and you realize what the word means is someone who's an adherent of Christ. He latches on to Jesus Christ. He follows Jesus Christ. He lives for and like Jesus Christ. Oh, well, that's a totally different meaning than just someone who 40 years ago was baptized and became a member of the church. But people take great confidence in it. People will say, I'm a member of the church. Or in at least the last 20 to 25 years of my preaching, I've heard more and more and more people say, not I'm a member of the church, but I'm Church of Christ. Well, no, you may be a member of the Church of Christ, but you ain't the whole church. But you see, people are throwing those phrases around. They're saying, they're repeating those phrases like the Jews who kept saying, Temple of the Lord. It gave them confidence. It gave them security. Let me look with you finally and go with me to the book of Matthew and let's look at the mindset of the Jew where it really was. In Matthew chapter 23 that we had read for us a moment ago, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, I'm like the hen who would love to gather her chicks under her wing, just protect them, take care of them, do everything they need done for her. I'm like that hen. But you won't have it. And then he goes on to say, you won't see me henceforth, verse 39, till you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And then he went out from the temple. He had, you know, he had blasted the Pharisees like we read this morning, and he said that over the city. And he went out from there, notice verse 1 of Matthew 24, he went out and he departed from the temple. And, it, and, and you can imagine how upset he is. And the disciples, the apostles, they see that. And they came to him. They're going to cheer him up. And what do they do to cheer him up? Look at the verse. They came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. Continue reading with me. Look at Mark's account in Mark 13. Again, he's condemned these people. He's cried, literally, over Jerusalem and where they are spiritually. He's gone out from the temple. He just sat down there. You know, you just see it on his face. You can see it in his body language. He just sits down from the hurt of the rejection of the people. Look at Mark chapter 13 and go down, yeah, from the very beginning of the chapter. As he went out of the temple, notice this, one of the disciples, we don't know who, but one of them said to him, Master, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And then it goes on to say in verse 2, Jesus answering and said, Do you see these great buildings? He's going to answer. But you see where the mindset of the people are? Man, look how beautiful these, these buildings, how great they are, how big and magnificent these buildings are. And they belong to God. And Jesus had just said, I wish you belonged to God. But you don't. One more. Luke chapter 21. Go down to about verse 5 when you get to Luke 21. Luke 21 down in verse 5. As some were speaking of the temple. Master, do you see these great buildings? Verse 5. As some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with goodly or beautiful stones. Remember I said the imported marble and all of that. The gold that was literally in the mortar. And the gifts that were laid at the temple. 
Now, if you go back in Luke 21, you'll see that this is the story of the widow and her mites and all of that, and the abundance, the gifts that were being given, I mean, constantly, just filing by, how rich this place had become. The mindset of the people was the building. And the mindset of God was the hearts of the people. It wasn't any different in the first century than it was in Jeremiah's day. And it's not any different today. When people get all caught up in the stones of the building. Now you might say, well, we don't have a building like that. No, we don't. We have church buildings. But we know that's not the temple today. We know the temple is our body. And we can get all caught up in the stones, so to speak, that build our temple, our spiritual life. And I'm going to tell you something. If the stones of my personal temple are that I go to church, that I take the Lord's Supper, that I sing a cappella, that I was baptized, if those are the stones of my personal temple, And God is looking at me the same way He was looking at these people. And He's saying, I want the heart. What's in the heart of the person? Now, if in the heart of the person I'm taking the Lord's Supper, because I really love honoring my Lord for what He did. And when I sing these beautiful songs, and man, Wes, you outdid yourself tonight. I'll give you that. The beautiful songs we sing. All day long we've been singing songs and the words within the songs are of how dedicated we are to Jesus. How much we love Him. If that's what's in my heart. If this church, if my love for this church is because it literally is the central place where Christians meet and we together honor and worship God, then that is the temple of the Lord. We are the temple of the Lord. But not the stones. No matter how beautiful they are, no matter how magnificent they are, and I'll tell you, no matter how much greater they are than everybody else's stones of all the other temples. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The church of Christ. The church of Christ. Where are we? In our hearts. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God, but you believe in Jesus, and you'll confess He's the Son of God, and you're willing tonight to repent, to change your life, and give your life to the Lord. You'll be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. He will wash them away. And if you're here tonight and you're looking at your life even as a child of God and saying, I need to turn things around. I need to amend my ways and do it. People would be glad to pray together with you. Won't you please come?